Well, welcome back to PK Classics, where we honor our upline so we can inspire our downline. My name is Vance Day, and I serve as president of Promise Keepers. And this is Lisa Allickson, my co-host. Good to see you again, Lisa. Good to see you, Vance. This is a fun show. We've got a special surprise for the guests. Oh, do we ever. And we've reached way back into the vault to Boulder, Boulder 1993. So this is one of the very, very first big stadium events. Mm -hmm. And it's Dr. Howard Hendricks. And man, did he make an impact upon the men. You know, Vance, I had an opportunity to meet him once, and he was so humble. You know, I just remember even what he talked about of, of being connected to God and spending time in the Word. But when I watched this program that the viewers are getting ready to watch, I didn't realize how much was under there as far as his strategy mm-hmm. about the next generation. Mm-hmm. Boy, and that how he thunders on about legacy and that, that need to really pour your life into another man, to mentor. I just, I love the essential, timeless message that he just pulls out of scripture and, and drawing men into that. You know, he, he was born in 1924 and passed away, I think it was February 20th, uh, 2013. So he's, he's been gone, you know, a little bit of time now. Mm-hmm. And, and the beautiful thing I think about uh, Howard Hendricks is the legacy that he left in his son, Bill. Mm-hmm. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have an opportunity to get together with Bill. We're going to interview him today, and it's through the modern technology of Zoom. And so you're going to get a chance to, to hear Bill's perspective on a whole variety of things as it relates to uh, his father, or so we hope. So, You know, Vance, Howard Hendricks was a mentor, seriously. But when I read the people that he had mentored— like, he's mentored Chuck Swindoll, mm. Tony Evans, Joseph Stowell, Robert Jeffress, and David Jeremiah. Wow. Now, that is leaving a legacy. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. You think about, and the impact of all those men mm-hmm. upon our culture, individually. And, of course, I love how Dr. Hendricks talks about that, you know, when you mentor another man, that that's an eternal legacy. It, if as long as those men have been taught to um, mentor others, mm-hmm. that it really never stops because they continue mm-hmm. to pour into each other's lives. And and you know we've talked about this before many times, Lisa, and I think our audience knows our perspective on it. That men make men. You know I love my wife to death, but it's not her job to make men, and and it's my job to pour my life into my sons as well as other men. And, you know, that the concept that you'll hear, of course, and, and we're going to ask Bill some questions about that, um, that, that how does a man put together that mentorship? Who does he pour his life into? And I love how Dr. Hendricks talks about that each man needs a Paul, a mentor in his life, pouring and speaking into him. Every man needs a Barnabas, that kind of just a friend, the son of encouragement, you know, that guy who speaks into your life and encourages you. And then every man needs a Tim- Timothy, a younger man, most likely, in the faith, particularly, who you can then pour your life into and, and do life together. You know, we call it discipleship. The world calls it mentorship. But it's a beautiful concept, and it's so, so critical. So let's jump over to uh, Dr. Hendricks. 
This is in the hot summer of 1993, Boulder, Colorado. Well, thank you, and good morning. The student's sense of humor is often quite perverted. Some time ago, I walked into the classroom. Some wag had written on the chalkboard these words. There once was a student of Esser whose knowledge grew lesser and lesser. It at last grew so small, he knew nothing at all, so they made him a seminary professor. I've discovered that students have ways of seeing to it that you do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I want to speak to you this morning, men, on a mandate for mentoring. The most compelling question every Christian man must ask is this. What am I doing today that will guarantee my impact for Jesus Christ in the next generation. If I understand my New Testament correctly, there are only two things God is going to take off the planet. One is His Word, and the other is His people. And if you are building His Word into people, you can be confident that will last forever. Today, we desperately need a multi-generational perspective. The Apostle Paul had one. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, The things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be capable of teaching others also. Paul said, I received the body of truth by revelation. And Timothy, I've communicated that to you, and not only to you, but others of your kind. I have identified 12 of them in the New Testament. Now, I want you to take that which I have given to you, and I want you to make it a, a deposit of that in the life of a group of faithful, reliable men teaching them in such a way that they will be equipped to teach others also. The implication, who will teach others? Who will teach others? You see, mentoring is a ministry of multiplication. Every time you build into the life of another man, you launch a process which ideally will never end. Have you ever asked, who impacted my life? What did they do? How did they do it? Why did they do it? And when you come up with the answers to those questions, you will be hooked on mentoring the rest of your life. The reason I am so excited about mentoring is because of the impact that it has had in my life. And I am standing before you today as a product of a core of individuals who built into my life ever since I came to Jesus Christ 
58 years ago. Now this morning I want to ask and answer two seminal questions and then apply those answers to your life. The first question is why? Why be concerned about mentoring? Is this another gimmick? Is this simply some secular idea imported from the corporate world which we've introduced into the Christian community and baptized with a few verses of Scripture? Or is it legitimate, biblically legitimate, for our generation? I am convinced there are three reasons, reasons that are compelling that you must become involved in a ministry of mentoring. First, you need to be involved in mentoring because of the severe shortage of leaders. Leaders are fast becoming an endangered species. Wherever I go, across America or around the world, the screaming need is for leaders. I know very few churches, very few Christian organizations that can afford to hang a sign out their front door, no help wanted. We need leaders in our homes. Gentlemen, the American family today is unraveling like a cheap sweater. And may I remind you of one historical fact? No nation has ever survived the disintegration of its home life. Once the home goes, it's just a question of time before it all goes. Pierre Mornell, distinguished West Coast psychiatrist, wrote a book entitled Passive Men, Wild Women. And in that book, he says, over the last few years, I've seen in my office an increasing number of couples who share a common denominator. The man is active, articulate, energetic, and usually successful in his work. But he's inactive inarticulate, lethargic, and withdrawn at home. In his relationship with his wife, he's passive, and his passivity drives her crazy. In the face of his retreat, she goes wild. Where are the men willing to step up to the plate and assume the role that God has given to them in terms of leadership in their homes? We need leaders in our churches. The average church in America is operated by 15 to 20 percent of its membership. But God gives to every believer a spiritual gift with which to function in the body, not with which to spectate in the stands. I tell my students at the seminary, there are only two groups of people in your church, men. The pillars who support it and the caterpillars who crawl in and out week after week. They occupy 18 inches, more or less, on a pew and shake your hand as a pastor and with something of a pious whine say, Pastor, that was a wonderful message. We'll see you next week. And my friend, they seldom come closer to the truth. The facts are that 80% of the churches in America have plateaued 
or are in serious decline. We need leaders in our society, in politics, in business, in industry, in education, in agriculture, in the professions, in the military. I don't need to remind you that the landscape is littered with bodies of leaders who have forfeited their right to be a leader because they are not men of integrity. They are not men we can trust. We need mentoring because of the severe shortage of leaders. But secondly, we need mentoring because of the perceived need for mentors. You see, there's a severe deficiency in our culture and it's seen in a number of areas. First of all, the absence of fathers. I'm not only talking about physically absent, I'm talking about fathers who are emotionally and spiritually out to lunch. And the result is the average boy in our society grows up and doesn't have a clue as to what a good father looks like. But also the absence of older male models. Gentlemen, the pedestals are empty. It was well expressed by a little kid in a barber shop some time ago when I said, hey son, who do you want to be like? He looked me straight in the eye and said, mister, I ain't found nobody I want to be like. You think he's an exception? I got news for you. The absence of a practical means of affirming maleness in our society. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were in Jerusalem. We were at the Wailing Wall. We counted five bar mitzvahs. It was the most exciting thing that in my trip to Israel, to watch these boys taken by a father, taken by an uncle, taken by a friend, hoisted to their shoulders, danced around that sacred area with people clapping and singing and women throwing candy. And I turned to my wife and said, sweetheart, those boys will never forget this day. What do we have in American society that even partially replicates that? Someone asked me in a television interview recently, what would you say has been your greatest contribution as a seminary professor? I said to affirm the maleness of many of my students. That's what we've got to get a larger core of men involved in. Everywhere I go, in the university campus, evangelical churches, or the business and professional community, I find most young men are asking, where can I find a man? And I find most older men asking, where can I find a ministry? The result is the younger men are frustrated and the older men are unfilled, fulfilled. But intellectual honesty compels me to tell you I am finding more younger men looking for older men to mentor them than I am finding older men willing to become involved in the life of younger men. I speak that to our shame.
There's a third reason why we need mentoring, and that is because of the rape of existing leadership. Two of the greatest crises, greatest curses ever perpetrated on a society have been crammed down our throat. And unfortunately, we've often bought into them. One of them is the generational gap. Gentlemen, there is no generational gap in the body of Christ. You cannot drill any man out of the core irrespective of his age. And young people desperately need older people. And older people desperately need younger people who are going to carry on in the next generation. But there's a second curse, and that's the curse of retirement. Wherever I go, I run into guys and they say, hey, Hendrix, you know, and I got it so many days, so many weeks, so many months, years till retirement. My friend, retirement is a cultural, not a biblical concept. You may retire from your company, you may not have an option, but my friend, you never retire from the Christian life and ministry. But you see, the only thing we know to do with older men is put them out to pastor and encourage them to play with the toys they have uh, accumulated. You discovered how many men there are over 50 who are reaching for the bench, who are sliding for home? At the very time when they ought to be tearing the place apart for Jesus Christ, they're caving in. May I remind you there are two lines in every man's life. There is first of all a lifeline. There is secondly a purpose line. And never forget it. Once the purpose line begins to taper off, it is just a question of time before the lifeline will do the same. See, the statistics are alarming. How many men die shortly after retirement? I'm finding an increasing number of guys blowing out their aorta on the way to Sarasota. <laughs> and the result, we're losing a great leadership pool in the body of Christ. Well, there's a second question I want to ask and answer. You say, I'm convinced. But what is mentoring? So let me answer that for you. Let me give you a simple definition. Mentoring is two things. It is a person and a process. It's a person, sometimes a whole series of individuals that God brings into your life at various stages and for various purposes. In every case, those persons are committed to helping you grow and helping you to perpetuate the learning process. You see, the epitaph of many a man is well expressed in the words, died, age 26, buried, age 64. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, as long as you live, you learn. 
and as long as you learn, you live. If you stop learning and growing today, you stop ministering tomorrow. Now let's bear in mind that mentoring is not new. The trades, the arts, the guilds for centuries have engaged in mentoring. Craftsmen, mentors, not only know what to do and how to do it, they also know why they are doing what they are doing. They're infected with basic attitudes, really a pride in what they are committed to as a work, and they know what to get excited about. See, all of us know about Michelangelo. Very few of us know about Bertoldo, his teacher. And there's a debate in art circles as to who was the greater, Michelangelo, the pupil, or Bertoldo, the teacher who produced him. Mentors are people who have a commitment. They're not playing games. They're committed to life change. And they have values. Very high on their priority list is to develop in another individual the marks of excellence so that that individual grows in their Christian life to hate the mania of mediocrity, the attitude, anything is good enough for God. As promised, we have Bill Hendricks with us, and we're so excited to be able to talk to Bill about the things that, that Bill experienced, you know, as his father, Howard, poured his life into him. So, Bill, welcome to PK Classics. We appreciate you uh, joining us. Where are you located today? Vance, I'm down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, good to be with you today. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you and through this program to speak with lots of men who really need mentoring. You know, your dad talks so much about how to pour his life and, and encourage men to pour their lives into others. Could you kind of give us a, a little bit of a window into what it was like to, to grow up with Howard Hendricks? And, 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 you know, obviously he's your dad and you, you, you have the good and the bad. I, I, I always... I think about my sons and if they were going to answer that question, that there would be some things, you know, that they, you know, would want to express about me. And I, we just want to hear, our audience wants to hear from your perspective about the kind of man your dad was. Well, I'll give you a summary, but uh, if somebody wants the full picture, they can actually Google. There's a, there's a YouTube of dad's memorial service where all three of his children, including me, I was the last answered that very question. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll just summarize what I basically said, I think, in that presentation was, dad was an illustration of what happens for a man who comes with actually quite few resources from knowing what a godly family really is about. But he put his life into the hands of God and said, help me be a godly father, a godly uh, husband. And that's what he did. And so the way I ended up uh, describing him uh, was in a quote that's been attributed to C.S. Lewis, who allegedly said, all any of us really need is a good enough father. You know, we talk about the perfect father. Dad was not the perfect father. He was a good enough father. What do I mean by that? He loved my mother. He loved all four of his kids. He held down a steady job to try to provide for his family. Uh, he, he spent a lot of time trying to pour Christ into us and help us gain a love for our heavenly father and he left a great legacy he was a man of impeccable integrity 
and, and it's a tremendous legacy to be able to build upon. And so dad is a great, I think, hope bringer to a lot of men who feel like, you know, I came from a bad background. What hope is there for me? Uh, or maybe I'm a lousy father. Every day is a new day with God. And uh, you can become the father you need to be uh, every day as, as you do what my father did, which is to keep coming back to the word, coming back to Christ and asking for the resources to do what you got to do to be that, that father. You know, Bill, one of the things that I love about, in some ways, the simplicity of the way God set things up is that, especially as a man, is you're just intentional, strategic, looking at the people around you and the circumstance around you, what is wise, offering it up to God, being humble and courageous. And one thing that is sweet to me is I watch your dad's message and then just see what you're giving your life to. You're entire career is helping other people see their giftedness and understanding their call in life. And I can't help but think you're a chip off of the old block, Bill. So help us understand how your dad, were there moments in your life? Was it when you were 12, when you were 18, when you had a young family? When were those key moments that you remember him kind of sitting you down and helping you know, understand yourself and your gifts and just being strategic about the direction and purpose of your life? Well, I do remember one particular time, it was probably in fifth grade, and uh, I had decided that I needed to get into the Bible, and I'm sure I got that from him. Dad was a great student of the Word, and he was a great encourager of others to be students of the Word. And so I went to him and asked him, to give me a few pointers on, well, what do I do here? How do I understand the passage? How do I get into this thing called Bible study? And and he spent a little bit of time showing me some basic principles that he had used in some of his classes with seminary students. And I use those same things to this day. So that's one example. I also think though that dad realized that there's a, um, there's a tremendous benefit in exposing your children to other adults who can join with that parent in building into the lives of your son or your daughter. And mom and dad were great at letting us as four kids meet and interact with people that they could trust to, uh, to be great models for us and give us lots of great input. And that started very, very early. I mean, really from childhood Sunday school all the way up into adult years. Dad was never never hesitant to introduce me to somebody that he thought I might benefit from. You know, your father, Bill, of course, was uh, on the Promise Keepers board back in the original days, and he was one of the the first speakers. Uh, You know, what we're watching, as you may recall, is Boulder, 1993. Well, my memory is that you and your father wrote a book together uh, back then. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that and, and what's happened since then. Yeah, it was a, it was a, as I recall, a hot summer night in Boulder and dad was, I don't know, he, he was, he was in a whole different place that night. And then he was talking about mentoring and in classic HGH form, he, he, he came up with this simple saying, every man needs a Paul, a Barnabas and a Timothy. You need a Paul who's pouring into your life. You need a Barnabas, a man who's walking alongside you as a peer and you need a Timothy, a younger man into whose life you're building. And that became kind of a, a watchword for a lot of promise keepers. And out of that, we were asked to put together a book on mentoring, which we wrote called As Iron Sharpens Iron, 
building character in a mentoring relationship. And this book has continued to be a resource to this very day for men all over the place in building mentoring relationships. Uh, not long ago, however, the publisher came to me, you know, my, my dad retired in 2011, went home to be with the Lord in 2013. And, and, uh, but they, the, the publisher came to me now and said, would you, would you like to update as Iron Sharpens Iron? And that was a no-brainer uh, because men need mentoring more than ever. And so I took that book, and uh, probably about 60% of this book uh, is, is new material, and it's called uh, Men of Influence, The Transformational Impact of Godly Mentors. Same core message that, that every man needs a Paul, a Barnabas, a Timothy, but the first book was more or less dad's take on mentoring. I was the wordsmith. I mean, some of my ideas were in there, but it was really his lifelong message and understanding that we were trying to communicate. And as I said, dad's now with the Lord and hopefully I've learned something about mentoring over the last 20 some years. And so uh, I was only too happy to put that book together, but it's the same basic layout. The first half is devoted to younger men who are seeking a mentor. The second half to older men who are needing to get involved in the mentoring process. Bill, it was 27 years later that you're rewriting this book. What are the truths that you found? They're timeless. It's They're going to be true 27 years from now. And what are some things that maybe you think have changed in our culture as you rewrote that book? It's a great question, Lisa. Uh, obviously, many things have changed. The main one being there's there's a couple of new generations. That's, that's, that's a big change that we need to pay attention to right there of younger people coming up who need mentoring. Uh, another one, of course, is that there's a, whole, a lot of new media, a lot of new ways uh, to use in the life-on-life uh, -life relationship. And, and of course, uh, another thing that's changed is the fact that Christians aren't really in charge in the culture anymore. It's not unlike the first century. Christians weren't in charge there either, but over about a 400-year period, they uh, actually basically took over the Roman Empire. So many things have changed, but one thing that's not changed, and this is the important thing, is that men still need mentoring more than ever, okay? In Proverbs 27, there's a proverb that's given that's timeless, and it was really out of that verse that we had the title of the first book. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In the Hebrew, the, the writer just puts two thoughts next to each other. Iron sharpens iron one man sharpens another. And it's as if it just puts those two thoughts there and says, you do the math. Well, obviously it means that just like an iron tool would be used to sharpen another iron tool. So one man can be used to influence the life of another man. We would say it today, we have a way of rubbing off on each other. And that means that mentoring is gonna happen whether we're aware of it or not. In other words, we just do. We have an influence on each other. And if that's the case, if it's inevitable, we can either do it well or we can do it poorly. And we can do it intentionally or we can do it unintentionally. I say, let's do it well. Let's do it intentionally. Let's do it as intentionally as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, where he charged Timothy to build in the life of other people so that those men would build into other men and they in turn into other men. It's what my dad called a ministry of multiplication. That principle has been around for as long as there's been people. It was the principle on which Jesus built the church through discipleship. Nothing has changed. 
that's what we need today is a, a ministry of multiplication. Bill, before we get back to hearing the last segment of your father's uh, talk back in 1993, I want to ask you to kind of just update the audience of what you're doing right now and the last thought that you might have before the audience shifts into seeing your dad finish up his talk. Before we do that, though, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you, you've seen, you know, Bill hold up the, the new book. And Bill, hold up that book one more time, the, the, the new one. Yeah, there you go. And we, you can get that book by going to promisekeepers.org. Go to promisekeepers.org and click on Resources. And uh, you'll be able to click through to Bill's website and purchase that book. And we encourage you to do that. Um, so, Bill, as we head back now and, and um, just about to get back to what your dad was, was telling those thousands and thousands of men 27 years ago, what, what's, tell us what you're doing and then your final thoughts. Sure. For the last, well, really most of my career, I've had a consulting practice, which is called the Giftedness Center, the Giftedness Center. What I do is help individuals think through their life and career directions. But a number of years ago, probably about six or seven years ago by now, Dallas Seminary came to me and asked if I would consider becoming the executive director for Christian leadership at what is called the Hendricks Center. My dad, when he was there, uh, founded a Center for Christian Leadership, which uh, now is called the Hendricks Center. And uh, what we're basically doing is, is building on the legacy that he established. He, he was all about the need for, for leaders to have character. You know, he, he used to say the number one problem in America today is a problem of leadership. And the number one problem of leadership is character. And so they built the Hendricks Center to, to really get into the core heart of a leader. Well, that's never been more true than today, but there's a lot of other pieces now that we need to build with that, into, in, especially in terms of how leaders communicate in a pluralistic culture. And so at the Hendricks Center, I'm now the executive director for Christian leadership there. And we like to say we're building Hendricks 2.0 uh, there at the, at the seminary. In terms of what I think dad would want to leave uh, as sort of a, a a byword here. He was huge on legacy. You got to ask yourself, what are you leaving behind? And if you're not leaving people behind uh, who, who you've built into, into their lives, that's who's going to outlast you. You know, I could go home tomorrow. I could go home today. God doesn't owe me another breath. But what I want to make sure I'm doing with my life is finding men and frankly, women as well, into whom I'm transferring that which God has shown me many times through people who did that same thing for me. I need to pass that baton on. That's really going to be our legacy. Well, Bill, having you on the program today is a picture to me of legacy. Howard isn't here with us on the earth anymore. He's in a better place, but you're here. And those truths that he built, not only are you repeating them, but you're carrying it out in leadership in a way that can impact our nation. And I want to say thank you for that. We're going to go ahead and cut back to your dad's message where he begins to break apart even in further detail what it looks like to be strategic and what it looks like to leave a legacy. But not only is mentoring a person 
or a group of people. It's also a process. It's a process of developing a person to his maximal potential for Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, we read, We proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, to this end, I labor, struggling with all God's energy, which so powerfully works in me. Why was it that the Apostle Paul was committed to mentoring? Because he had clear-cut objectives. You see, your objectives determine your outcomes. You achieve that for which you aim. And he knew that the most important contribution he could make in terms of the next generation is to build into the life of this one. I'm finding an increasing number of men who are ending their life at the top of the pile in terms of their field and at the bottom of life in terms of fulfillment. And I believe the reason is they are often men who have very fuzzy objectives. But not only did Paul have clear-cut objectives, he had clear-cut priorities. He not only answered the question, what do I want at the end of life, but what price am I willing to pay for it? I happen to be a Van Cliburn fan. And some time ago, a woman in our church who plays in the Dallas Symphony Orchestra said to me, Howie, are you going to the Van Cliburn concert? I said, I wouldn't miss it. She said, how would you like to meet Mr. Van Cliburn? I said, you got to be kidding. No, she said, I'll introduce you to him. You meet me behind the stage at the end of the concert, and I'll introduce you to him. You can be sure I was there. And I had a question I want to ask him. I said, Mr. Van Cliburn, how many hours a day do you spend practicing the piano? And very casually, he said, oh, eight or nine hours a day. Two hours doing nothing but finger exercises. And to think, my mother wanted me to play the piano. <laughs> Would I like to play the piano like Van Cliburn? You better believe it, but not that badly. <laughs> and often a guy will come to me and say, Hendrix, I'd give my right arm if I had a marriage like yours, to which I say that's precisely what it may cost you. And I often ask, if you had an option, I mean just one choice, either a great job or a great marriage, which would you choose? You see, it's your priority that enables you to answer that searching question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says the Christian life is a race. It's not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. And its success is determined at the end. And Paul said, it's a unique race because all can win. Not all will, but all can. But I fear. Paul? What do you fear? I fear lest having ministered to others, I myself 
should be disapproved. If that was a live option to the Apostle Paul, men, where do we come in? You see, it is so essential that I determine not only where am I, but in what direction am I moving? Now, so what? What's the application of this? Every man here in the amphitheater needs to have three individuals in your life. You need a Paul, you need a Barnabas, and you need a Timothy. You need a Paul, that is you need an older man who is willing to build into your life. Please note, not someone who's smarter than you are, not someone who's more gifted than you are, and certainly not someone who has it all together because that person does not exist. We are all in process. But you need somebody who's been down the road, somebody who's willing to share with you not only his strengths, but also his weaknesses, not simply his successes, but his failures and what he learned in the laboratory of life. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 you read, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Please note, not their methods, not their giftedness, not their personality. Comparison is carnality. It was the women who sang it, that's what made it so lethal. Saul had slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that so ate his lunch that he spent the rest of his life pursuing David rather than the Philistines. But you need a Barnabas. That's a soul brother, somebody who loves you but is not impressed by you. Somebody who's not taken in by your press reports and to whom you can be accountable. And by the way, don't miss your wife's role in that regard. I've never been able to impress my wife and kids. I've tried. I used to think my kids would be impressed that I'm a seminary professor. That's impressive, don't you think? You don't think so? <laughs> Neither did they. My younger son said to me one day, hey, Dad, when are you going to get a new job? I said, what's the matter with my job? I said, I can't explain to anybody where you work. They all think you work in a cemetery. And sometimes I think I do. My kids are not impressed that I know Greek and Hebrew, and I hate to tell you this, but they're not even impressed that I came up here to talk to you. <laughs> My kids, like yours, are impressed by the reality of Jesus Christ in my life. If you got anybody in your life that's willing to keep you honest, 
that's willing to say to you, hey man, you're neglecting your wife and don't give me any jazz. I know it, everybody else knows it, it's about time you know it. Who's the person in your life who can say, hey man, you talk too much? Without you turning defensively and saying, well, I don't see any wings sprouting out on you. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. When Peter went to Antioch, Paul said, I opposed him to the face because he was clearly in the wrong. That's the kind of Barnabas that you need. And third, you need a Timothy. You need a younger man into whose life you are building yours. And if you want a model, look at First and Second Timothy. Here's Paul, the quintessential mentor, building into the life of his protege. Notice what are the issues that he addresses. Somebody who can affirm you and encourage you. Someone who will teach you and pray for you. Someone who will correct you and direct you. That's the kind of person young people are looking for. Now, how do you get these three men in your life? Well, let me give you two suggestions. First of all, you pray that God will bring into your life a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. You see, I happen to believe that where prayer focuses, power falls. You may not take God seriously, but God takes prayer very seriously. And I am seeing an increasing number of men, younger and older, who are praying for Paul's, for Barnabas's, for Timothy's to be brought into their life. And God is wonderfully answering. But secondly, you, begin to, you need to begin to look for these men. Get your antenna up. See, I have a lot of single students at the seminary who come and say, Prof, I'm thinking about getting married. Oh, I said, that's a wonderful revelation. I said, you got any gal on the line? Oh, no, no. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Are you dating any? Oh, no, no. I said, well, how do you expect to find her? You mean you think God's going to let her down on a sheet out of heaven some night? It's obvious you've got to become involved in the process. And by the way, don't be surprised if it takes more than one or two experiences before you find that person. Because there has to be a personal resonance. resonance. There is a chemistry that develops in a good mentoring relationship. Now I hear somebody out there on the 27th row saying, you know, why are you so excited? You're frothing at the mouth and fairly need to be led away. I mean, I take it this really has you. You are right. And it's not because I read some books on mentoring. It's not because somebody came along and said, Hendricks, here's something else you need to get involved in. But it's because it's the story of my life. You see, I was born into a broken home in the city of Philadelphia. My parents were separated before I was born. 
I never saw them together except once in my life when I was called to testify in a divorce court in the city of Philadelphia. And I'm sure I could have been born, died, reared, gone to hell. Nobody would particularly care. Except a small group of believers got together in my neighborhood to found an evangelical church. And that was a miracle because everybody said, you can't find an evangelical church in that community. You know, whenever somebody says you can't do it, I often think I hear God roar. Oh, really? Watch me. That small group of individuals met to worship and to study and to develop a passion for that community. A man by the name of Walt came to the Sunday school superintendent and said, I want to teach a Sunday school class. They said, wonderful, Walt, but we don't have any boys. You go out into the community, anybody you pick up, that's your class. Walt came out. I'll never forget the day I met him. He was six feet, four inches tall. He said to me as a little kid, hey son, how would you like to go to Sunday school? Well, anything that had school in it had to be a bad news item. And then he said, how would you like to play marbles? Oh, that was different. Would you believe we got down, played marbles till he beat me in every single game, lost my marbles early in life. And by the time he got through, I didn't care where he was going. That's where I wanted to go. For your information, he picked up 13 of us boys, nine of us from broken homes. Today, 13 of us are in full-time vocational Christian work. And Walt never went beyond sixth grade. I can't tell you a thing he ever said. I can tell you everything about him because he loved me more than my parents did. He loved me for Christ's sake. And I'm moving today because of a man who not only led me to Christ and discipled me, but started that mentoring process. I want to leave you with a verse, with a passage of Scripture. Jot it down and look it up. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. The wise man says, two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I want to recommend a cord of three strands. You need a Paul, you need a Barnabas, you need a Timothy. An older man building into your life, 
a soul brother to keep you accountable, a younger man into whose life you can build. And there isn't a man in the stadium who does not know of someone younger than you that you can mentor. I'm here to tell you, after much experience, that you haven't lived as a Christian until you have been mentored. You haven't lived until you have been involved in the process of mentoring. Gentlemen of God, go for it. man, so what a powerful message. I mean, the stuff he shares is just like, yeah, everybody could do that and really make a difference forever into mm-hmm. eternity, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier. But, you know, the thing that really strikes me is how one man came and said, would you like to come to Sunday school? And when he said no, he said, okay, let's play marbles then. And just developing that relationship. A guy took the time out of what? An evening or a Saturday or a Sunday when you know he would have been just as busy as any of the rest of us. And yet he saw, I want to, I want to, there's something in my heart that wants to reach out to little boys. Mm-hmm. And Howard being one of 13 in such a tough growing up situation, I didn't have any idea of that. And all 13 of those young boys that that man, man reached out mm-hmm. to are in full-time ministry, giving their lives to the kingdom. And you look at, like we said, how many people Howard has mentored from Tony Evans and Chuck Swindoll and Ravi Zacharias. I mean, just the intentionality of an ordinary life, mm-hmm. living it out, giving the time, God uses it. He does. And you think about it in the midst of the depression, you know, marbles. I mean, no, who plays marbles nowadays? I mean, <laughs> nobody. But I think the lesson for us today is is to pick something that that person enjoys. I mean, for a man, you know, who who is trying to invest himself in a younger man's life, you know, video games, for example. I'm not a video game player, but there are times where in the past I've played video games with younger men because that's what they're into. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be wise and be you know, integrate into what um, those other people are interested in. And I think, you know, when you think about the impact that Howard had upon, you know, so, so many men, the the lesson that I draw from that is you never know when you're engaging somebody the eternal consequences of a simple act like Howard's mentor did with Mm -hmm. him, playing marbles, Mm -hmm. changed the whole trajectory of Mm -hmm. his life. We really need to be conscious of that in today's world. The way God set it up is so different than what we see with our natural eyes, the spiritual world and the realm that is impacted and the difference that it makes. When you think about who impacted your life, it's powerful. And I think as as women, too, it's really important to remember that though Mm -hmm. men build men, we have a huge influence. And I would just like to encourage you 
in our audience as women to be praying for your men. God hears those prayers. They hold a special place in his heart and they're powerful. And even helping your men get involved in Promise Keepers, whether it's purchasing a ticket or just getting the information, put the details together, make it simple so that when he agrees or when he's wrestling with, do I want to do that? You've got it all right there for him, and you can be a part of what God's doing in that realm. That's a great encouragement. And you know, folks, we are going through difficult times, you know, here in America today and across the world. You know, when things can shift so quickly in just a matter of weeks, and people are ordered and have to deal with a government intervention so that this coronavirus doesn't overtake us so quickly. It's important that we recognize that God is at work here on this earth and what he allows in his wisdom, he could easily stop with his sovereign power. So as you're dealing with these difficult times, remember, always remember, tuck yourself into the Lord. We'll join you again next week here on PK Classics as we always try to honor our upline so we can inspire our downline. Be safe, be good. Thank you for joining us.